Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson, and I'm flying solo today. Um, today, this is the history of alien abductions, part six. We're getting to the big dogs here. Uh, when it comes to the alien abduction phenomenon, there has been no greater figure in its shaping than Bud Hopkins. And shaping, I think, is the perfect word because, as we've covered on this series, before this point, abductions were very different animals. It was through Hopkins that it became an intergenerational phenomenon that its captors all looked the same with slight variations and that those captors were lying, deceiving assholes with an agenda that could be gleaned through hypnosis. Alien-human hybrids dominated the field because of Bud Hopkins and to a larger extent, David Jacobs. In short, the phenomenon that you know as alien abductions is the product of Bud Hopkins' research and the proliferation of that research from other figures like David Jacobs, and David Jacobs in particular. Uh, this episode's going to piss off a lot of people, but when I set out to create this series, I wanted to do it right. I'm not a fan of Bud Hopkins or David Jacobs, and I feel like we are entering a phase where people are starting to recognize the flaws in their work. Um, and not only that, in David Jacobs' case in particular, how abusive it can get. Yes, abusive. To start, Bud Hopkins was born in 1931 in Wheeling, West Virginia. He attended Oberlin College, graduating in 1953. He moved to New York City and went on to become a successful Impressionist painter. In 1964, while living in an art colony on Cape Cod for the summer, he had a UFO sighting in broad daylight that kind of changed his view on UFOs. Quote, how I, a rational, peace-loving artist, ever became involved in something so esoteric as the UFO phenomenon is something I'm not really sure of myself, though one thing is clear. Events came to me. I didn't seek them out. In the beginning, at least. End quote. Up front, in his first book, Missing Time, he initially treats this topic as if it's not something that's worth his time. After all, he's an artist. But in the summer of 64, he was driving with his first wife, Joan, and another friend, Ted, when they spotted a dark object in the sky against the clouds. They stopped their car, craned their necks, and wondered whether it was a balloon. Quote, one of us, I forget who, said, do you suppose that was one of those flying saucers you used to read about? End quote. Um, yeah. It just sounds so pretentious, I'm sorry. But they continued on to the party they were going to attend at a friend's house. But that incident stuck with Bud. Quote, I began to look into the matter of UFOs and was soon made aware from a book I bought on the subject that the situation was far from being resolved, that it was, in fact, a perplexing and ongoing mystery. End quote. At that point, he joined NICAP started to consume more and more UFO literature, and started to investigate cases on his own. 
One article that really grabbed his attention was a piece written by John G. Fuller about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, a case which we covered on episodes 54 and 55. Bud thought the case was absolutely ridiculous, but it would come to define his body of research. Quote, It took three or four years for me slowly to admit to myself the possibility that Betty and Barney Hill abduction just might have happened exactly as the Hills recalled through hypnosis. As I read about the case in detail, I finally bought Fuller's book, The Interrupted Journey. I began to feel that the Hills were recalling precisely what had happened to them, and the fact that it emerged the way it did under hypnosis in two separate accounts gave it unusual validity, end quote. To Bud, quote, surreptitious examinations such as those conducted on Betty and Barney Hill made a great deal of sense, especially when contrasted with the foolish landing on the White House lawn, take us to your leader concept of what we should expect, end quote. From then on, he kept tabs on abduction cases, and in 1976, he investigated his first case with the assistance of Ted Blocher and Jerry Stower, uh, and that came to be known as the Stonehenge Incidents. We covered this uh, case on episode 30. It's one of my all-time favorites. Uh, in essence, George Obarski, co-owner of a liquor store in the Chelsea District of Manhattan, had his own interrupted journey, Sands abduction, when, while cutting through North Hudson Park in New Jersey, a UFO paced his car briefly before landing in a nearby field. Ten alien beings exited the craft in a single line, collected soil samples, and returned to their craft, where it took off toward Manhattan. Later, they found that North Hudson Park played host to a number of strange phenomenon and also found additional eyewitnesses that were working security across the street at the Stonehenge Apartments. Four years and many investigations later, um, actually more like five years and many investigations later, uh, Bud published his first book, Missing Time. George's account was featured in there, and there was an ad spin to it, quote, at the time of the North Hudson Park investigation, neither Ted Blocher nor I knew very much firsthand about abduction cases. It occurred to both of us, however, that there was a nagging time problem in George's account. If the UFO incident spanned only three or four minutes and George arrived home at roughly 3 a.m., then he couldn't have left his Manhattan store until 2.15 or 2.30 a.m., the 20-block drive from his shop to the Lincoln Tunnel and then along Boulevard East to the park can hardly have taken more than, say, 20 minutes at that time of day. Now, Bud was the only investigator that believed that maybe, just maybe, he was abducted. To me, that feels like Bud is projecting his interests, but uh, it's a fascinating case, a fascinating story, you know? Um, I'm, I'm not going to deny that it isn't, but, uh, to assume that because there could be a slight time discrepancy that, uh, he was abducted. Yeah. I'm not really on board with that. Missing time, a documented study of UFO abductions is an important book because it was the first to kind of lay out what abductions were. Many of the books before it laid out single stories, such as The Interrupted Journey, The Andreessen Affair, and The Tohunga Canyon Contacts, 
or they featured a compilation of abduction stories, such as the Lorenzen's book on abductions and another one that was edited by D. Scott Rogo. These are like compilation books um, that feature, you know, like maybe a 10 page write up on a certain abduction case. These abduction cases were singular events, one and done. They they weren't something that uh, occurred again and again and again. And if they did, um, most would deny it. Most would, you know, uh, they, they dubbed that the repeater problem. Bud Hopkins used his own investigations to lay out different aspects of the phenomenon, including roadside abductions, bedroom abductions. There's just like a, a, a lot of elements here, um, in, including, um, you know, scoop mark scars, um, intergenerational type events, vivid dreams. Bud's really big on vivid dreams. Um, and, and these become regular features. But uh, Hopkins' premise is simple. I have described UFO abductions as cons- constituting an epidemic. In fact, we have no idea how many such kidnappings may already have taken place. But I believe there are vastly more than the mere 200 or so incidents which have been investigated, end quote. The primary collector of these cases in 1980 were Ted Blocher and David Webb's Humcat, uh, Dr. James Harder, Dr. Leo Sprinkle, and the ones that Bud had collected by this point, um... Abductions were dicey, but people would write about them. They would appear in, you know, UFO journals and such. But uh, now Bud lays out certain factors that he looks for that might indicate an abduction account. One, witnesses aware of an unaccounted time lapse, missing time. Two, witness has strange marks or scars following such a time lapse. Three, witness has dreams or vivid memories of such an event taking place. Now, Hopkins has an interesting way of uh, accessing what might be uh, abduction accounts to him. As we mentioned before, the supposed time gap between the time George left and the time that he got home, which could easily be explained. In the uh, case of Dennis Mac McMahon, um, listen to his reasoning for why he thinks one of his encounters was an abduction case quote the sighting which i suspected might have been an abduction was described to me this way shortly after dinner on a friday night mcmahon according to a long established habit drove to west nyack and picked up his friend paul frederico they drove to a narrow road overlooking defrost deforest lake where they parked and began to talk over the events of the past week and plan what to do the rest of the evening. Where there was a dance that night, where they might find some girls and so on. Frederico noticed, on the flat top of the black enamel dashboard, a reflected light which seemed to be slowly increasing in size and brightness. He pointed it out to McMahon... They both jumped out of the car and looked up at the underside of an oval UFO hovering about 35 feet above a nearby telephone pole. The object had a large beam of light radiating downwards from its center and a line of multicolored lights around its outer edge. McMahon ended his account by saying that his car wouldn't start, even though he had recently installed a new battery. 
He waited a few minutes, and when he tried again, the engine instantly fired. They drove off towards Clarkstown, the location of the nearest police station, to report the incident. As they moved along, the UFO seemed still to be above them, but then it pulled ahead, changed direction, and shot off to the northeast, disappearing in seconds. I had heard McMahon's account several times, and Frederico's once, before I noticed an odd gap in their narrative. They saw the reflected light, got out of the car to see what it was, and the very next event they mention is that the car wouldn't start. Nothing about how long they stood out there watching the UFO or when they decided to get back into their car, end quote. So, specifically, Bud says here that the fact that they didn't recount getting back into the car, didn't say, oh, we got back into the car, this is evidence. Um, to me, this isn't strong evidence of an abduction account, uh, like, at all. There's no strong case for missing time, which is one of the factors he uses to assess cases. His assumption is that because they didn't talk about getting back into the car, it's an abduction, and I can't even. But Bud Hopkins does find two, a two-hour block of missing time. Just magically, it's there. But, like, at the same time, I'm not going to get into, like, the nitty-gritty of the cases, in, in this book, um, they're very rudimentary. Um, if you uh, recall episode, I think it's 115, The Unspeakable Secret, um, it's it shares a lot of similarities with um, a case in the book, uh, the case of Steve Kilburn, or uh, his real name is Michael Bershad. They're basically driving along. This, I, I would tend to wonder if it's the same road in um going from Baltimore. But, uh, you know, just a very interesting case. Uh, Hopkins features seven abdu abductees. And in a chapter titled Speculations Both Grim and Hopeful, he starts to put his theory into place. Quote, Why have the UFO occupants taken so many? And why, apparently, do they attempt to conceal the nature and magnitude of their operations? Basic information gathering on the species simply cannot explain all these separate events. Two other related possibilities suggest themselves. However, either the UFO crew members are taking something besides information, or they are leaving something behind with their captives, end quote. Bud starts to put forth his idea that what the aliens are after is that sweet, sweet reproductive material and biodiversity. The idea that we're talking about scientific elements, which we mentioned um, with Stephanie Quick, we mentioned in the the last episode. Um, but the seeds are there for the theories that Hopkins and Jacobs will be presenting later on. And for Bud, it would really come from his next book, Intruders. But I think the four greatest takeaways from Missing Time are these. One, Hopkins postulates that there are a ton of abductees out there. Again, he considers this to be an epidemic. Two, that many abductees had repeated encounters over the course of their life. These encounters started in childhood between the ages of three and six and continued until around the age of 40. Three, there are often scars left behind on the experiencer's body. In this case, Debbie Cobble, her mother, her closest friend, and her next-door neighbor all had these kind of scars. And four, 
vivid dreams as abduction experiences are a big part of it and will play, you know, a part of it, uh, you know, onward. It's a it's a big thing for Bud. Now, these concepts are not really new, but they were kind of buried in reports that circulated in the UFO community. For instance, the Year of the Humanoids report speaks of a systematic study of humans as part of the abductor's plans. Quote, 1973 had an unprecedented number of eight reported abductions of witnesses by humanoid beings. Even more remarkable was the fact that six of these occurred during the fall wave and all six during the month of October, the peak month of the wave. All six bore striking similarities, including physical examinations of the witnesses with one another and with older cases. Five of the six occurred in the United States. These facts, taken at face value, imply that a systematic study of human population sample and of a limited geographic area was made during the fall of 1973. Furthermore, it would appear that this type of bold behavior by the UFO entities is becoming more common. I have recorded 50 abduction cases dating back to 1942, and half again as many, which I call possible abductions, i.e. the witness does not recall being abducted, but a period of missing time or memory loss is involved. Over half of the abduction cases, and most of the possible abductions, have occurred during the 70s. Although the recognition of potential abduction cases and the use of regressive hypnosis to recover potentially repressed information from UFO witnesses has only recently become a standard procedure, it seems that this type of encounter is on the increase and may signal a new phase of the UFO phenomenon. End quote. Six years later, Bud would publish Intruders, a book that would expand his abduction mythos. In 1983, after reading Missing Time, Debbie, Co Debbie Cobble, or Kathy Davis as she's called in the book, uh, wrote to Bud about her experience. Quote, she told me later that while she was reading the book, she had begun to realize that she herself had had many of the same partial memories, UFO abduction dreams, and disturbing mental flashbacks as the individuals I described. The effect of it all had been extremely unsettling, though in her initial communication she decided not to refer to her own deepening anxiety. Because of a personal reticence that I soon recognized as one of Debbie's basic qualities, she preferred to tell me about other things first. Her letter described a pair of strange incidents. Quote, Around the first week of July 1983, at about 8 to 9 p.m., I was prepared to go out and sew a little at a neighbor's home. And while I was standing at the kitchen window, I noticed a light in the pool house and the door was open. I remember shutting it earlier, so I knew it shouldn't be open let alone have the light on, so I mentioned it to Mom. She looked and wondered what was up, but neither one of us were at all alarmed. When I got ready to leave, I decided to drive around the turnaround to make sure no one was out there. As Mom would be alone with the kids, my sons Rob, four, and Tommy, three, when I did, the light was off and the door was shut and the garage door was open which is always kept shut. 
When I got to Deanne's house, one street over, I called Mom and told her what I saw and asked if she'd like me to come home and check it out. And she sounded rather nervous, not at all like my mom. She said she'd seen a big light by the pool house, and it moved up to the bird feeder and grew to about two feet in diameter. But she didn't see any beam. It was just like a spotlight on the bird feeder, lighting it up, but nothing else around it. When I got there, it was gone, and I looked all around the property with my dad's twenty-two. I'm a chicken. I did finally find my dog, Penny, hiding under a car out back. Usually, she carries on something fierce when anyone she doesn't know is on our property. It's not like her to hide and have to be coaxed out, of, out from anywhere, especially by me. She's usually all over me. I didn't see anything, so I went back to sew, and later that night, Dee and I and her daughter came back about midnight and went swimming. Right after that night, our yard was burned. By what, we don't know. Nothing will grow there now, no matter how much water we give it, and wild animals won't go on it. At first, even Penny would walk halfway around the yard to avoid walking on it. She'd sniff it and run the other way. Birds will no longer go near the bird feeder either. We have always had tons of birds every day, especially red birds. Well, that's the story of our backyard mystery. It's still here for anyone who wants to see it, more or less, unchanged. End quote. In the second incident, quote, Now about Laura. My sister Laura is 35 years old. She's always been very level-headed and not much imagination. Always the realist. Anyway, in the summer, about 1965, she left one evening about 4.30 p.m. to take my mother to bingo. On the way home from dropping her off as she was passing the church on 10th Street, she suddenly was compelled to pull into the church parking lot around back. She noticed there weren't any cars around, and though it quite strange for a Sunday afternoon in that busy area, when she parked, she looked up and saw something she'd never believed before then. It was silver. I believe she said the lights were red, green, and white, flashing somewhat. Flickering might be a better word. It was hovering soundlessly, over the lot about telephone pole high, right over her car. All she remembers now is she reached over to turn down her radio to see if it made noise, and then the next thing she remembers is it's dark out, and she looked up, and this thing is gone, and she's driving down the street. When she went to get Mom that night, they drove around looking for it, but never saw anything else, end quote. Other family members, like Debbie's mother, recalled having dreams where she was trying to protect her daughter from some people that were in the house. She did so by shoving her in the attic, which was accessed through a closet. Debbie herself also had strange dreams of nighttime invaders in her bedroom. The most unique aspect to Debbie's story was a pregnancy that occurred in early 1978. This pregnancy was confirmed by urinalysis and blood test. In March, however, she resumed her menstrual cycle and discovered that she was no longer pregnant. Enter hypnosis. Debbie recalled an abduction where she was put on a table 
and it's as if she's given a gynecological exam. She describes the experience as pleasant to a point until she identifies that there is something wrong. Debbie starts to feel pain all over her body, and she feels as if her stomach is starting to be squashed. And then she starts to sob and yell in high, wailing voices, No, it's not right. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's mine. It's mine. I hate you. I hate you. It's not fair. This is from Bud. Quote, I guessed what had happened, and shortly after I brought Debbie out of the trance, she confirmed it. They had taken her baby. End quote. Bud did his best to comfort her, as he writes it. And when she had calmed, he asked her if she told the beings that what they were doing was cruel. She said that she screamed at them and stated, And the fucker looks surprised! End quote. Eventually, in a later abduction, Debbie would hold one of her hybrid children so that the aliens could observe her care for the child. Quote, it has something to do with touch and the human part. They don't understand, but they'll learn. It occurred to me afterwards that this need for a demonstration of material of maternal feeling might be the reason why UFO occupants have apparently shown various female abductees their half-human offspring, if that term is even approximately correct. Uh, here is a, a clip of Debbie appearing on uh, Deanie Petty's talk show. Uh, she's a Canadian talk show host, and uh, she uh, she she pulls no punches. I I you know she's she's fierce um, with these questions. But uh, yeah, here's here's a clip. There there are things that I do have problems believing, you know, accepting. What 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 do you have problems with? Um, the hardest part for you is. Well, the hardest part for me is when I got pregnant, because when I got pregnant, um, I assumed that I got pregnant by the man that I was going to marry, and I still think I did. I don't, you know, it's, it's just a tug of war inside of me. Um, and I was just like any other woman that got pregnant and then lost a baby. It hurt all the same, you know? But the circumstances under which I lost it were unusual, to say the least. And uh, that's why I kept it to myself for seven years after my mother knew that I had been pregnant and then wasn't pregnant. So you're pregnant, you're suddenly not pregnant, and what happened to this child was, at least your dream recall is, that you were abducted and the child was taken from you. The day that I woke up, and the first thing I, when I, the first thing that came to my mind when I woke up that morning was, I'm not pregnant. This is after an abduction experience, a dream experience. Like, well, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not pregnant. And then I got up and went to the restroom, and there was a little bit of spotting. But I still continued to say I wasn't pregnant. I also felt that it, that I had had a baby girl. And uh, and in a subsequent abduction, when you were went through one of these dream experiences, you were shown a child. And this child, you, you recognize, but it's part human and it's part not human. It didn't look real good. How old no. would this child have been when you saw her? About three or four. It's through intruders that Bud introduces his key concept. Quote, 
It seems to me that Debbie, Pam, and Lucille, who are uh, other people that he mentions in the book, are describing from different points of view the same strange extraterrestrial situation. In this unexpected scenario, the UFO occupants, despite their obvious technological superiority, are desperate for both human genetic material and the ability to feel human emotions, particularly maternal emotions. Unlikely, though it may seem, it is possible that the very survival of these extraterrestrials depends upon their success in absorbing chemical and psychological properties received from human abductees. End quote. Hopkins earned his fair share of critics, including Jacques Vallée, who stated in his book Revelations, quote, If we believe some retired and some active members of U.S. intelligence, not only have we recovered crash saucers, but the government of the United States is in league with hundreds of space aliens who are here on Earth working alongside our best scientists in the underground cities and occasionally going out in their sophisticated spacecraft to abduct human beings. Such researchers as New York artist Bud Hopkins and Temple University historian David Jacobs, who specialize in hypnotizing witnesses after UFO sightings, even believe that the purpose of the abductions is to procure ovulating Earth females for the loathsome genetic experiments of the alien invaders, an idea that dates back from the 1958 sci-fi flick I Married a Monster from Outer Space. He states further, According to the abduction specialists, the missing time experience of the witnesses who have encountered alien beings and have been taken inside their craft should be investigated through hypnosis, which provides the most complete and accurate picture of the behavior of our extraterrestrial visitors. Most of these specialists, like Bud Hopkins and historian David Jacobs, vehemently reject any suggestion that the part of the experience should be read as the symbolic level, at the symbolic level, like a play, a dream, or a movie. Instead, they accept it at the literal level of a scientific extraterrestrial mission. End quote. So, yeah, that's... Um, I can totally see his point. Everything is literal with these two. Everything is literal with David Jacobs, Bud Hopkins, all of that shit. Now we're going to transition to the David Jacobs portion of this. I'm not going to be getting into the um, Linda Napolitano abduction case because I... To be totally honest, and it's not going to be part of the abduction series, I'm going to cover it on its own. It deserves to be covered in full because it is like, it's where Bud's kind of reputation, I think, really goes down the tubes. But David Jacobs took an interest in the UFO phenomenon when he was an undergrad in college, where he developed an interest in American history. Hopkins started to devote more and more time to the subject, reading articles and books and joining a few UFO clubs. His dissertation, later published as The UFO Controversy in America, was a detailed history of the phenomenon from its early days to 1975. So, I will say that book is pretty solid. Um, if there's anything of David Jacobs' work that I recommend that you check out, the UFO controversy in America is it. I do think that it has been supplanted by 
Richard Dolan's UFOs in the national security state. Um, Dolan is much more in depth with what he's doing and, and what he's presenting to the reader. So um, and even if you want to dip your toes in UFOs for the 21st century mind is a is a great place to start if you want that kind of history. As he began to research more and more, there are a few problems that David Jacobs had, quote, after I received my Ph.D. And believe it, believe me when I say he will not shut up about this Ph.D., puts it on everything. He thinks it gives him, you know, some fucking credibility. But I began teaching at the University of Nebraska and then in 1975 at Temple University in Philadelphia. At the same time, I kept up my research on UFOs published articles, and gave papers on the subject. As I continued to work in the area, I became aware of a major problem with the direction of that research. The study of UFO sightings was progressing well, but some of the most fundamental questions about the phenomenon were nowhere near being answered. Why, for instance, were these objects here? Why, if they were extraterrestrial, did they prefer to fly about and not make contact with humans? The answers to these and other questions could not be obtained from studying the outside shells of the objects. We needed to know more about what happened inside the UFOs. The only UFO reports that described the interiors of the objects and what happened in them were the abduction cases. But the few cases investigators had collected in the 1970s were so different from one another that it was almost impossible to tell what, if anything, had actually happened. That's an interesting statement coming from a guy who's going to help shape this phenomenon so it looks the fucking same all the time. Yeah, I'm fired up about this. Two men said they were abducted by elephant-skinned creatures with long, sharp noses and claw hands. Another claimed to have been abducted for five days straight and to have seen not only small aliens, but a human one as well. Well, that's a pretty derivative uh, account of the Travis Walton abduction, but whatever. A woman said that little beings came right through her wall and transported her to another planet. That's Betty Andreessen. Some of the abduction stories involved benevolent beings who had come to bring peace on Earth and personal growth to the happy recipients of the contact. Still, others told of prophecies of atomic destruction. Even though similarities existed between these cases, for example, all the abductees reported that they had been given physical examinations. It was easy to relegate this melange into a hoax and mind game category. Furthermore, there was the memory problem. Virtually all abductees suffered from a form of amnesia that prevented them from remembering exactly what had happened during the abduction. The preferred technique for retrieving these lost memories was hypnosis, but it was common knowledge that memories collected in this manner were not reliable. Indeed, some of the transcripts of hypnotic testimony that I read revealed obviously leading questions and incompetent follow-up answers. The lack of well-researched solid events did not inspire confidence from the fucking man that would lead so many fucking witnesses in his goddamn hypnosis sessions. In 1982, 
A friend introduced me to Bud Hopkins, an internationally celebrated artist who had been interested in, in the UFO mystery ever since his own sighting in 1964. Since the late 1970s, Hopkins had specialized in examining abduction cases, and his first book, Missing Time, was published in 1981. In this pioneering work, he investigated a small group of people who he thought might have had abduction experiences. I was immediately impressed with his skillful research, using a psychologist to administer hypnosis. Hopkins had collected data much more systematically than anyone had before. He meticulously uncovered important information about abductees having puzzling sustained lapses in time, mysterious scars, bizarre physical examinations, and screen memories, false memories masking what may have been abductions, and he even theorized a possible generational link between parents who were abductees and their children, end quote. Still, Jacobs had questions. These accounts were so mysterious to him and often incomplete that there was only one solution, quote, I knew that if I were to make sense of what was happening, I would have to do abduction research myself. This meant that I would have to learn hypnosis. Of course it did, you fuck. I had never hypnotized anybody, and it was a frightening prospect, but I was determined to learn. By 1985, Bud Hopkins was doing his own hypnotic regressions, which, again, is a bad move, and he invited me to sit in on his sessions. I discussed hypnosis techniques with him and other researchers. I read books about hypnosis. I attended a hypnosis conference. I learned about the dangers and pitfalls of hypnosis. Jacob's first experience or referral was from Bud Hopkins, a woman named Melissa Bucknell. From the start, and soon it bloomed from there. Quote, I decided that the best way to go about gathering systematic information was to conduct as many hypnosis sessions on as many suggestive events in an individual's past as possible. Over the next five years, I had more than 325 hypnosis sessions with more than 60 abductees, end quote. Mind you, these are 1992 numbers when Jacobs first published Secret Life. Um, one thing that Jacobs discovered in his research is that the aliens would stare at their abductees with intent. Quote, As I tried different lines of inquiry, I at last hit upon the right question. The answer opened up a world of completely unknown testimony about supposed procedures. Question, What is he doing while you are doing this? Answer, He seems to be staring at me. I was surprised by this answer. When I asked the question, I had thought that perhaps the being was doing something in the room while leaving Lynn to her task. But as soon as she said that he was staring at her, I began to be suspicious. Perhaps the point of this event had very little to do with memorization. I asked other abductees what the beings were doing when they said that they were required, uh, that they were required to observe or concentrate on something. In virtually every case, the answer was that the being was staring at them, very closely, and usually at their eyes. I began to realize that this event might be a complex series of mental procedures that were administered to abductees, end quote. Aside from finding out that aliens like staring contests, 
The one thing that Jacobs built upon is Hopkins' notion that there was a secret alien-human hybrid breeding program. And, and what I want to emphasize to you all is that Hopkins would publish to a point. He would publish his ideas to a point, but he kind of let David Jacobs do the dirty work. And he empowered David Jacobs to do things, um, you know, like fucking you know, get like introduce so many different concepts and we'll be getting into the concepts a little bit that he introduced in secret life. David Jacobs laid out the truth of alien abductions as he saw it. He detailed step-by-step the alien breeding program, the hybrid program. He introduced the idea of mind scans into the mythos. The idea is that aliens program their abductees through a series of psychic controls He introduced the idea of breathing pools, liquid vats with hybrid babies inside them, and and so much more. All of this came from David Jacobs. In his follow-up book, The Threat, the hybrids were here to replace us for an impending invasion. Like, David Jacobs is so obsessed with an alien invasion that it, it, it will eventually consume him. And you will see how it does um um, their hybrid technology apparently improved in appearance because in his final book and i don't even remember the name of it it's not even important he introduces the term uh hubrids which are human looking hybrids um it's a very dumb term And, and if you read david jacobs like last book um you will find some of the dumbest like chapter titles because they say things like someday he's going to eat a pizza. Someday he's going to drive for the first time. Like shit like that. Like what the hell? In essence, Jacobs hijacked the abduction phenomenon and molded it into the phenomenon he wanted. And he did it through countless hypnosis sessions. So many hypnosis sessions. As Jack Brewer puts it in his book, The Greys Have Been Framed, quote, This is not to suggest that reports of the strange do not occur without the aid of hypnosis. They do, but the significance can hardly be overemphasized that the use of hypnotic regression played a key role in the rise of the alien abduction narrative. The resulting imagery it seeded into pop culture and the subsequent alien-related belief systems passionately embraced by the public, end quote. Yes, Um, and there are other, you know, pop culture staples that, that did play into this. And, um, you know, like the X-Files, the X-Files had a big hand in, um, you know, really shaping how we view the abduction phenomenon. It starts with Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs, but it does release into pop culture what abductions are. In Secret Life, Jacobs details the alleged rape of a teenage girl by an old man, as well as another very cringy hypnosis session with a woman who's forced to have sex with an unconscious man. Like, before Jacobs, this this was not a thing. This was, this was not a fucking thing, and it's so fucking problematic. Um, and you can't tell me that it isn't. Like, the fact that he included that shit is disgusting. But perhaps the most infamous case he was involved in was that of Emma Woods. In 2010, Jeremy Vaney and Jeff Ritzman of Paratopia uh, 
brought the Emma Woods case to the forefront, uh, built upon the work of Kim Carlsberg. Her story was published in the November 2010 edition of UFO Magazine. Emma began a professional relationship with David Jacobs that lasted for five years, beginning in 2002. Jacobs said that he was probably an ab- that she was probably an abductee during a phone conversation. Quote, he sent me a long 18-page questionnaire containing 608 questions to fill out and return to him. He said the results indicated I was being abducted by aliens, end quote. Uh, Emma wrote in an email to Jack Brugger in 2015. During one hypnosis session, Jacob suggested to Woods that she was suffering from multiple personality disorder and suggested that she lie when people asked her what Bud Hopkins was investigating. Yes, that's right. Bud Hopkins, or David Jacobs, tried to convince her that she had multiple personality disorder. How fucked up is that? How unethical is that? It's incredibly fucked up. Jacobs apparently tried to lead Woods to believe he made the suggestion because evil E.T. human hybrids could read Emma's mind during the their episodes of abuse with her. So when they did, he wanted them to be deceived into thinking Jacobs was actually investigating MPD, not alien abduction. If the ruse was catastrophically proved unsuccessful, the hybrids were going to kill Jacobs to keep him from revealing their heinous plot of global dominance. Therefore, he seemed to imply that the more she believed and told people she had MPT, the better. Ingenious, wasn't it? End quote. Um, That's another quote from uh, Jack Brewer. Um... Jacobs claimed that he received threats from hybrids through an instant message through instant messaging from a woman named Elizabeth, one of his subjects. Uh, the situation with Emma would become more disturbing. Like, like I want to emphasize the point that David Jacobs believes that the hybrids want him. They're going to go after him. The question is, why haven't they done it already? It makes no fucking sense whatsoever. So the situation with Emma would become more disturbing during one session, and on audio, Jacob suggests, during hypnosis, that Emma should purchase a chastity belt. Jacobs explained how he frequented bondage places often. Quote, after introducing the idea during the session that she wear a chastity device, Jacobs informed her he was willing to send her one, given the knowledge of them. The chastity belt suggestion was supposedly also because of the hybrids. The device might slow down their repeated sexual assaults and put a kink in their plans. He explained. Yeah, that's a literal quote from the audio recording. If you're wondering, both Jacobs and Woods were aware the interactions were recorded. End quote. Most disturbing of all, Jacobs hypnotically suggested that she was a, quote, sperm collection tool used for male abductees to, to stimulate so that they could collect sperm samples from them. Sexual abuse became a frequent tool that Jacobs could use and would go so far as to hypnotically suggest that she mail him her underwear for fucking DNA analysis. What the fuck? <sighs> Jacobs would also employ amnesia blocks to hide the hypnosis sessions from her. 
Um, quote, what is creepy about it is that Dr. Jacobs seems to be not only blocking my own memories, he says I can access the memories a little bit in the future, but that he seems to be trying to seal my memory of what happened during the hypnosis session in a corner of my mind so that no one else can access it. He says that even if they are powerful, they will not be able to access it, end quote. When I realized that I had parts of my memory wiped, I was shocked, she replied. I had no memory that he suggested to me under hypnosis that I should wear a chastity belt. I am not sure how long after that hypnosis session it was before I lost the memory, but by the time that I ended my association with him, I had no conscious awareness of it, end quote. Ultimately, Woods confronted him in 2007, and Jacobs threatened to reveal her identity if she didn't keep quiet. A man by the name of Brian Reed came forward from his story with his story to Jeremy Vaney and Jeff Ritzman. Um, Brian was a second generation experiencer under Jacobs, quote unquote, care. Uh, this is from Jack Brewer, quote, the young man interpreted himself uh, to be an abductee, or at least an experiencer of high strangeness, since early in his life, and let's just say the exploration of alternative perspectives weren't likely to have been encouraged a whole, whole lot. To his profound credit, Brian apparently managed to apply some critical thinking in spite of his personal conditioning, and the manners he described the twice-his-age Elizabeth to have attempted to influence him. End quote. Brian would be hypnotized a handful of times by Jacobs and would conduct I am hypnosis sessions with Elizabeth at Jacobs request because he's so scared of those fucking hybrids. So Brian would basically do these um, Q&A's over I am with the hybrids. Uh, quote, during the during interactions that did not allegedly involve hybrids, Elizabeth would have would apparently encourage Brian to use a pseudonym when IMing with the hybrids for reasons, according to Brian. She should she suggested included uh, Brian's personal safety, commenting on such hidden identities and the many aliases recommended and employed. Emma explained that Brian pretended to be uh, pretended uh, to the alleged hybrids to be a doctor who lived in Austria. End quote. Needless to say. Brian cut ties with Jacobs. Jacobs told him not to communicate with Emma Woods, but he did it anyway. There is one other story, uh, but I, I want you to, to direct you all to it, uh, to another podcast, The Nonsense Bazaar, episode 36, a Journal of an Alien Abductee or The Iniquity of Dr. Jacobs. Uh, it details the plight of a woman named AJ who was subjected to much of the same stuff that Emma Woods was. Um, definitely go check out that episode. And I would be remiss to mention Carol Rainey. Rainey is a filmmaker and one of Bud Hopkins' ex-wives. After reading Emma Wood's story following its appearance in UFO magazine in November 2010, she wrote an article in the first issue of Paratopia called Co-Creation of the Alien Abduction Phenomenon. Carol apologized for the part that she played in Bud's work from the 90s to the early 2000s. She writes, quote, Yet, how very different are the standards for the so-called researchers of alien abduction? After a decade of involvement in the field, I'm struck that most people with a ufological fascination don't hold their leading researchers to anything like these scholastics, to the, like these scholastic scientific or even ethical standards. Many people may not 
even be aware that such standards exist, but they exist for a reason. Folks, and sometimes UFO abduction research, as fascinating as it may seem, violates every one of the basic principles for the getting of knowledge and the protection of human subjects. The two best-known abduction investigators, Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs, work almost exclusively alone, separately, although with extensive telephone exchanges, without supervision, and are unwilling to accept any, and without any training in medicine or psychiatry or neurology. A bit of comparative religion, anthropology, and folklore under the belt wouldn't hurt, either, in dealing with these difficult-to-interpret human experiences. They're not required to get authorization for their experimentation on human beings for an institutional review board, a clearance that's required of every legitimate institutional researcher in the country. It's peer review of a proposed study using human subjects. It's strict, and researchers are required to report back to the IRB with their findings. None of this applies to UFO researchers. What we have now is abduction research that not only lacks an outside funding source, it also lacks researchers who understand the epistemology of the ways in which knowledge is acquired and how that's connected to truth, justified belief, and skepticism. In such an arid moonscape as this, there are no structures, no boundaries, no standards, and no supervision. So given all this freedom and no credentialed peers to naysay them. What do you suppose happens to two investigators who are also each other's best friends in the world in their search for knowledge in a wacky, marginal field like alien abduction? And, even more important, what happened to the de facto patients of researchers without boundaries? Let's open wider what was, for me, the Pandora's box of the Emma Woods' David Jacobs case. These two leading abduction investigators, I now believe, are driven by the rules of the game they're, they're in to whip up their best cases to drive them hard. These ufologists, whose egos, supplies are dependent on their standing in these marginalized fields, are desperate to keep bringing home the magic. Unless they're to become quickly obsolete, alien abduction experts are expected to deliver the goods. Newer, fresher, stranger, and even more strange reports. It is not incidental that David Jacobs was intending to write a book about Emma Woods and several other experiencers, people who shared a high strangeness narrative focused on the infiltration of hybrid beings into our society. In Emma's audio tapes, we can hear Jacobs, before the regression, telling Emma about his other cases, which included their hybrids' violent, sadomasochistic sexual behavior, and warning her that they just might discover that in her own upcoming hypnosis session. That isn't even leading. It's an outright push for her to then deliver, under hypnosis, the exact narrative he needs for his book. It is also not incidental that Bud Hopkins does not ever express doubt about the reliability of Linda Cortile's story and the seminal importance of her case. If he did, he might be forced to question his own ability to sort fact from fiction or to spot a rising hoax before it crested and breaks over him." End quote. She then goes on to say that both Jacobs and Hopkins were trapped by the phenomenon they created to the point that fantasy became reality. And in the case of Jacobs, we can see that it has gotten to the point 
that he fears that the hybrids are going to get him. So Jacobs creates victims to suit his narrative, throwing away all sense of ethical responsibility to said victims. And if calling the shit out doesn't piss you off and you want to call me out on it, leave your one-star reviews and get the fuck out. And that's going to do it for this episode. Um, Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on most podcasting apps. If you want to follow us on social media, you know, buy some merch or, you know, look for the link to our Patreon page. Head on over to OurStrangeGuys.com. You can find all that and a fantastic digital resource page. So if you want to get lost down the rabbit hole of antiquated UFO journals like I do, you can do that. I have a P.O. Box if you want to send me stuff. It's uh, P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. Uh, You can check out Welcome UFO People, the webcomic that I write uh, and that my buddy Todd Purse illustrates. Um, You can follow along on Instagram at Welcome UFO People and Twitter at Welcome UFO Peeps. If you are subscribed to our Patreons, we do have high-res images that we upload there of them. Our Strange Skies is a production of Duvid Media. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song, UFO, as our theme. Go check out Floats. Um, specifically, not an album, the album that the song comes from. It's fantastic. Spencer Worth Davis is the man behind the curtain for this podcast. Our logo was designed by Megan Lagerberg. And the great Desdemona is behind many of our t-shirt designs. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or in the office of a man who does not meet the requirements to conduct a fucking hypnosis session. In gray, we trust. Yeah.